Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One, a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and the environment. Today we're discussing the recent UN climate conference in Copenhagen. What happened? Where does the process go from here? Because the conference had so many dimensions, we've invited 11 participants who attended the conference to share their personal insights. We have leaders from government, business, advocacy, and philanthropic circles. Each will give a two-minute remark, and then we'll discuss their remarks and hear from the audience in a town hall format. Now I'd like to welcome first Nancy Skinner, who is chair of the Natural Resources Committee of the California State Assembly and a longtime uh, person dedicated to climate change. Welcome, Nancy. Good evening. Copenhagen was the 11th of the 15th international UNFCC negotiations that I've attended. So many of you may think, I must really be discouraged, but I'm not. And the reason is because... I don't necessarily expect huge action from international negotiations. I will tell you two significant milestones that occurred in Copenhagen. First, every country that is a major emitter for the first time came to the table with commitments to reduce emissions. We're talking China, India, Australia, U.S. And we had um, a U.S. negotiator who no longer was saying that climate change was bogus, as we heard from Harlan Watson, who used to be our lead negotiator. Significant milestone. Second milestone. There is action by cities, states, companies, that level of government and grassroots type of action all over the world. And it is substantive action. It is not immaterial. You had over 100 major cities there, the mayors of Berlin, of L.A., of Johannesburg, of Paris. And their cities are not just making political commitments. They're actually reducing emissions, counting them, measuring them, and evaluating their progress. Then you have states like California, provinces like Manitoba, other provincial levels of government all over the world that are pushing the edge of the envelope and are the laboratories for the action that is going to guide our good national or international action, right? Because if you look at what the EU did most recently, you know, the carbon trading scheme that was put into place didn't really result in much carbon reduction. So there was a lot of lessons to be learned there. And it's our cities and states that are actually putting things into place and creating the laboratories that we can learn from. Now, let me just cite a couple of things here. One, in the U.S. alone, currently planned state actions, if fully implemented, would reduce emissions 25% below 1990 levels. That's a greater amount than the targets that are being discussed by Congress right now. So one message there is, even if we have national legislation, even if Congress acts, we still must have state action. We need those states to fully implement all of those, plus national action. And we have that kind of story that I can tell you about cities all over the world and about provincial-level governments all around the world. In the meantime, we have a threat to our own state's action, AB 32, California's Global Warming Solutions Act, where we have some people who are saying that we should repeal it because it's bad for the economy. You'll hear more about that later. Thank you. 
Thank you, Nancy. Sally Osberg is president and CEO of the Skoll Foundation, which supports social entrepreneurs around the country. Welcome, Sally. Thanks, Greg. Actually, it's uh, social entrepreneurs working all over the world whom we support. Um, I think, unlike Nancy, I found Copenhagen uh, pretty dispiriting. Um, I think it was uh, evident to almost everybody that what was going on in the Bella Center was disheartening. There was very little expectation that a binding agreement would be, would be reached. 192 countries who, as a friend of mine said, can't agree on their child care policies, while there was very little hope that they would come to an agreement, much less a binding agreement on climate change, emissions targets, and energy, trans, uh, energy transformation. That said, I think my experience in Copenhagen was, like Nancy's, quite positive. Innovation always happens in the margin, and Copenhagen was no exception. The innovative ideas, the work of NGOs, the work of the subnationals was on evident display in the side events at Copenhagen. For those of you who were there, the side events were organized by all the folks who weren't part of the Conference of Parties. They're the people who were actually doing things. The Scotlands, who are at 40% in terms of their, uh, their uh, transition to, an, uh, to uh, energy reductions and transition to a renewables economy. Um, Red, which wasn't on the agenda for Kyoto, was there in spades in Copenhagen. And for those of you who saw the Prime Minister of Norway talk about the billion-dollar investment in the Amazon fund, there was real reason to cheer because that fund is on its way to proving that avoided deforestation can actually get us a third of the way we need to be by 2020 in terms of our global emissions targets. So there was evidence of good work being done, subnational levels, NGOs, and wonderfully innovative solutions like the RED framework. And that gives me heart. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Amy Lures is environmental manager at Google. Google's playing an increasing role in energy and environment. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I think the good news about Copenhagen is that the Copenhagen Accord, that Copenhagen is much more than just the Copenhagen Accord. Um, the year-long road to Copenhagen was really a global mobilization, certainly um, greater than anything I've seen in my lifetime. And I was really impressed, actually, to see the world engaged at that level um, over the last year for the first time on this issue. Um, and I think what we need to do now is keep up that momentum, but push and, and make room for um, reshuffling or changes in the process and approach. But I think that there are some good signs that sort of came out of the Copenhagen process that, um, that indicate we're moving in that direction. And a couple, for example, include one is a shift away from the sort of standard dichotomy between the Annex One and non-Annex One countries, which was established in the UN Framework Convention, uh, which is essentially developed in less developed countries, uh, to a bigger range of political groupings, such as the basic countries, Brazil, South Africa, and China and India, having larger role, the MVC countries, the mo most vulnerable countries, having an in important, increasingly voice in terms of thinking about the discussions. There are a lot of negotiations that still need to be go on, but I think these political groups will be important in the landscape. Another is the local action, the increasing role of, of subnational groups in terms of um, 
adding up to global emission reductions. And Nancy mentioned this, and I think that um, thinking about how that fits into the global picture will be important. And finally, I was very encouraged by uh, the attention that the land-based sector uh, got during Copenhagen. Of course, um, land-based sector is very important in and of itself, contributing about 30% of global um, greenhouse gas emissions. But I think most importantly, perhaps, it might be an indication that we're moving towards thinking about um, sector-based approaches and not simply emission, national emission targets and timelines as far as the international negotiations. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Bruce Clafter is head of corporate responsibility and sustainability at Applied Materials, one of many companies in Copenhagen. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So unlike Nancy, um, I was a newbie. This was the first conference of parties I had attended, so my perspective is based upon that fact in part. And I wanted to relate a personal um, anecdote to begin. Um, Upon arrival in Copenhagen, the the next day we went down to the Bella Center to register, and like a lot of people here in the audience who can probably relate to this, I stood there for three hours in the cold. It was about 20, 22 degrees outside, waiting to get into the center to obtain my credential. We didn't move literally for that period of time. Then we got into the center, and there was a Disneyland-type line. But when I reflect back on the experience I had, that was really one of the most interesting parts of of my journey there because I was standing in line with a lot of other people who were very hopeful about the entire event, hopeful that something would emerge from Copenhagen. And the diversity there was absolutely incredible. Tens of thousands of people had descended upon the city. And in the space of those three hours, I had some fascinating conversations with German TV journalists, labor unionists from Turkey, economists from Taiwan, all standing within a few feet of me. So that was a really inspiring part of the experience. Now, I was there in part to assess how my business and business in general might participate in something like the Conference of Parties. And I have to say I'm still a little uncertain how business can meaningfully contribute to the Conference of Parties, to the negotiations, and what sort of value we can derive from participating. We're still looking at what we want to do in the future. When I sat in the plenary sessions and observed a parade of speakers complain bitterly about the process not being respected and so on, and this was just before the heads of state arrived, it led me to believe that there was a terrible disconnect between the people on the technical working committees and the politicians. So I think the United Nations really has to examine how the process itself works in the future. I I really think it got broken in Copenhagen, and hopefully they'll be able to fix that, and we'll make some real progress in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. A.G. Kawamura is Secretary of Food and Agriculture for the state of California. Food and water will be a way that most people feel impacts of climate change first. Welcome, A.G. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, You know, for us, Copenhagen was a groundbreaking opportunity to really introduce the the very realistic uh, and very sobering uh, proposition that if you have unpredictable weather, that means unpredictable harvest. And that simple uh, uh, understanding on the part of the agricultural sector, big and small, organic, non-organic, is something that we're very concerned about. And yet we hadn't really seen uh, over these decade, over the last decade much of a, a dialogue in the, in the realm of what happens with agriculture, how are they going to adapt, how do you mitigate, how do you deal with a food supply for a, an increasing population on the planet that will eventually be at 9 point something billion by the year 2050. We've heard all the de- estimates of what kind of 
food supply we're going to need by then, but the challenges that uh, are, are facing us in being able to produce a predictable, reliable food supply on all the different uh, landscapes that we have in this planet uh, make it a very difficult uh, challenge for us looking into the future. And when you have unpredictability in the different things that allow you to get a crop off to be harvested, when you recognize in the underdeveloped world that, underdeveloped world that almost half of the products that are grown never make it on the plate, when you recognize in the developed world that almost 30 to 40 percent of the products that are on the plate get thrown away, these are some huge issues that we have to work with. And yet, Governor Schwarzenegger, I think, has always been supportive of us in our agricultural department and in our state, recognizing, as was mentioned earlier, that you can change the world from the point of view of a subnational government. A state of California as a large, uh, large economy in this world can make some great progress in trying to figure out where do we want to be Use it, use it as a template for some of the good things that can take place. And certainly in our agricultural sector, that was our goal when we were there. We wanted to make sure that there was an intersection between food sheds, water sheds, and energy sheds. Renewable energy blending together with the food sheds, blending together, and a food shed is your regional food supply, blending together with your uh, water shed. These are the kind of challenges that we have, but, op- uh, and, but more importantly, many of the opportunities to take this 21st century notion of a predictable food supply and, and really ramp it up so finally we will have on, the, on this planet the opportunity to really defeat everybody and, and thrive as opposed to just survive. So thank you. Thank you, AG. Dan Jacobson, Executive Director of Environment California. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Um, I'm not as optimistic. For me, Copenhagen sucked, <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why. I went with the hope that the world would come together and solve global warming. We had a brand new president who, as a few people have said, came and really changed America's view of how we were going to deal with this. Um, But we didn't, and it's a disappointment, and it's a real problem. Um, The highlight of Copenhagen is some of the work that has been stated. And the good news is, is that at the state level, we really are solving global warming. We wrote a report called America on the Move that looked at, if you add up what the states have actually done on global warming, what do the numbers look like? Six states have put a cap on to CO2, not just California, but five others around the U.S. 29 states have renewable energy standards where they're actually mandating that their electricity come from clean energy sources like wind and solar and geothermal. Uh, 14 states have put caps on the amount of CO2 that can come out of the tailpipes of their cars. That program has just been picked up by President Obama and is going to be national. And 22 states have done energy efficiency programs where we're doing more with less energy. So while Copenhagen as a whole, I think, didn't work, there were a number of problems, not only from the freezing cold lines of waiting outside of the Bella Center, but from the ability of 192 nations to agree on a particular way to solve global warming, it didn't work. But the good news that comes out of Copenhagen, and as the New York Times referenced in their editorial, where the work is being done is, as Assemblymember Skinner said, at the local and state level. And we're going to have to do more of those agreements and arrangements at that level to make sure that even as Congress stutters and slows down on this issue and as the U.N. fails to act, states continue to play a leading role in solving the problem. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) Particularly excited to welcome Catlin Gray, a student at Alameda High School, is one of the only one or two uh, high schoolers from California to go to Copenhagen. Welcome. Hi, um, my name is Callan Gray, and I'm a senior at Alameda High School. 
Um, this past December, I got the opportunity to travel to Copenhagen as um, one of 18 uh, youth delegates from across the U.S. Um, with the organization Sierra Student Coalition. Um, attending this event was extremely important to me. Um, I wanted to represent the high school students of America and also to represent my island hometown of Alameda, which um, is actually due to be uh, underwater within the next few decades because of <laughs> the effects of climate change. Um, when I first got there, I felt hopeful and excited to be with 2,000 international youth and, hundred and uh, tens of thousands of people in Copenhagen in one place hoping and waiting for the same thing, a fair, ambitious, and legally binding treaty. I was overwhelmed with a sense of importance, hopefulness, and gratitude for being able to be there. I saw the people of the world come together when everyone from babies to senior citizens from every country gathered together in both the conference center and on the streets to fight for climate justice. However, as non-government organization delegates were cut out of the negotiations the second week with restrictions on access to the Bella Center, my bubble of hope, solidarity, and admiration burst when I realized a fierce discrepancy between what the people wanted outside of the negotiating sessions and what was getting done on the inside. I'm not an atmospheric scientist or a politician, but in 2050, I'll be 68, and this was the 15th COP, and these people have been negotiating almost my whole life. When people ask me how I think Copenhagen went, I tell them it was a failure as a conference, but a personal success. Despite how much COP15 disappointed me, I still managed to leave inspired. However, it's not any of the decision makers or important people who left me with this feeling, but rather the feelings of solidarity and motivation that came from meeting people like the Mexican journalist that was staying across from me in our hostel, or a young man I met who was the only non-government representative from Zambia, and all 30,000 people who entered the world stage to show that climate change must be taken seriously. Thank you, Kevin. Leslie Dersinger is managing partner at Terra Global Capital, which develops and finances carbon offsets. Welcome. Wow, I didn't uh, speak like that in high school, so uh, wonderful job. Um, As you can see just from our speakers this evening, the expectations about Copenhagen were quite bimodal as well as the opinions on the results. I mean, just look at the nicknames in the popular media. Copenhagen was one of them, or Brokenhagen was another one of them. I went with very few expectations. I mean, what do you expect? 192 countries have to agree on something unanimously in a global recession? I mean, come on. That having been said, you know, really the focus that I had there was looking to see whether it appeared as if we would get a mechanism and a commitment that could reduce greenhouse gas emissions from land use change, or RED plus as it's called, and whether or not that mechanism might be able to catalyze private investment, because concessionary dollars alone won't make a difference at scale. So did I come away feeling good, bad, indifferent? For the most part, good. Um, I would say there were a couple of key things that were in the yes column, the pro column. One is is that reported yesterday 55 countries, key countries, signed the Copenhagen Accord, and that was uh, countries that were key to U.S. involvement, so EU, uh, India, China, they've been mentioned, uh, uh, U.S., 
And that allows for transparency because one of the criteria was is there had to be an international verification of emissions if you were going to get international support. So that's good for uh, private investment. The other was there's a lot of uh, commitments for concessionary funds that would help build the capacity of governments and also allow for early action, i.e. making projects and activities within countries ready for investors. On the no or maybe side, I would say market mechanisms have three words in a part of the um, uh, working group that was not even part of the accord, so we're not sure whether there'll be market mechanisms. And then the other one was, the other sort of maybe no was, what about um, national and subnational project level? So I walked away pretty positive, although really where we're looking now is U.S. legislation, because U.S. legislation is very likely to support international forestry uh, activities. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tony Brunello is Deputy Secretary for Climate Change and Energy at the California Natural Resources Agency. Welcome. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate this and appreciate you putting this together. I think that's about half my time. Um, I, there's two things that I came away with that still relish where we are today. I think first one is that predetermined progressive climate action locally, the state, nationally, or internationally is not predetermined. That was a new one for me. And I think the second one is that climate change, good climate change science really matters. So what we did is we really, as we moved up into going to Copenhagen last year, we had Obama who came in. I was also at the last two COPs, and I also was with Harlan Watson last year as he shut the door on us as we tried to talk to our own U.S. delegation. But then we had discussions about how we might have national legislation that would happen. We have our California program going. Then we had the governor who came. And it was a bit of a disappointment, I think, but what we, what we saw there. So what was, as I stand here today is to realize that it's so much more important, as we've heard, that we need more state, local action to really move things. It doesn't just happen. So we really need to keep that push. We can't hope for the international or at the state or at these levels. We really need to keep coming from below. The other issue was this climate gate scandal that talked about emails that had surfaced from scientists before the event happened. And I think people lose touch that the science is really driving a lot of the policy. And there's also been discussion about the International Panel on Climate Change that we talk a lot about the climate impacts. And I think people lose touch that it was already predetermined that the science is showing that the impacts are happening. I definitely believe that's the case. But I I think another key reminder is that we really need to keep paying attention to science. The science isn't going to stop. The impacts are going to continue to happen. Despite what happens at the international level or at any policy level, we really need to pay attention to those climate impacts. So I'm going to end 30 seconds early. How about that? Thank you. You get a, uh, a, a time credit you can sell on the secondary market. Um, Lewis Bloomberg is director for California Climate Change at the Nature Conservancy. Welcome, Lewis. Uh, thank you, Greg, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for the invitation to participate tonight and all you've done with this forum. Um, I'm going to share my brief uh, thoughts on Copenhagen. Um, I would say that the outcome, in in my mind, is muddled. It's not really clear. There was a lot of confusion. Um, And there was some progress, and there were some setbacks as well. And our role there with the Nature Conservancy, we had three priorities. We were working on the role of forest, forest carbon. 
working on adaptation to help people survive, and on the financial mechanism. And we worked hard with the, uh, the formal treaty process. We had representatives from 10 different countries there working on our team. And in terms of forest carbon, you've heard a little bit already tonight about RED, which is reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation. Forest loss accounts for about 15% of global emissions every year. We won't solve climate change unless we stop these emissions. So progress was made on that. Um, in addition, um, uh, the U.S. pledged a billion dollars to uh, address deforestation. Four other countries stepped up, and uh, cumulatively $3.5 billion was pledged to, a, a, to stop deforestation. However, the issue of the role of subnationals as states was one of the most contentious parts of that negotiation. That was left hanging because the Copenhagen Accord did not tie up to the actual negotiations that were going on. So that was part of the muddled outcome. In terms of ecosystem-based adaptation, there was a lot of uh, progress made. People now accept that notion. Uh, people want to help the, the most at-risk people around the world um, survive the impacts of climate change. So there's progress was made on that. And the third, on finance, there, were, um, there was, again, progress there in that uh, a short-term fund of um, $30 billion to be developed over three years was supported, and there was talk of supporting an annual fund of $100 billion to be in place by 2020. Now, the devil's in the details. They were not forthcoming. So, it, again, it was a muddled outcome. But a lot of that money would be available to help um, people in nature adapt to climate change. So um, I'm optimistic still. I think the process is grinding on. We saw today uh, the announcement on the uh, pledge and review uh, system for emission reductions. It's a voluntary system. It doesn't have the strength that Kyoto does. And that's one of the other uncertainties is how the Kyoto Protocol what will happen to that in the future? Will it continue or will there be another treaty? So ultimately, five countries kind of cut the deal, and uh, I'm taking Tony's 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> You've got to pay for it. And, and I think that's the future. It's going to be a small groups of leaders. 155, uh, the leaders of, of uh, 115 nations were there to address climate change. That's a major, major outcome. It's on the table globally, so we'll see what happens. Thank you. Thanks, Lewis. Emily Adler is Partnership Director at the Alliance for Climate Education. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me today. So as Greg said, I'm with Alliance for Climate Education, and we are a national nonprofit based in Oakland. We work to educate and inspire high school students on climate change. Um, we were in front of um, 156,000 students last fall. We'll be in front of half a million by this end of the school year. Um, so... ACE was really founded on this principle that we don't need to wait for students to grow up to be change makers. You can see it in Catlin right here. She's just amazing, right? And what I really um, you know, took from Copenhagen is this, I, I went expecting students to be just that, to be you know, really powerful change makers. But when I was there, I was absolutely floored by the 2,000 young people that I met. Um, this was the first year that the youth were considered an official constituency at the COP, and they totally rose to the challenge. Um, there were projects like Adopt a Negotiator, where a single individual youth would corner their country's negotiator at every possible moment. Um, it was really incredible. Um, they used all the tools and technology that you can imagine. Um, they could organize a flash mob of climate youth um, in you know, 20 minutes when they heard something coming out of the negotiating halls. Um, they were just hyper-responsive and ultra-prepared. And to me, it ultimately demonstrated this really amazing, powerful will for change. Um, so 
uh, we've heard a lot of different feelings here, and you know, a lot of people were completely disappointed by Copenhagen, and I wasn't. Um, you know, I know that nobody's going to put someone who isn't even old enough to drive in charge of these climate negotiations, but I left with this feeling that if we had, we would probably be in terrific hands. I mean, <laughs> these youth have the knowledge base. They're you know, completely motivated. They're independent. Um, they have nothing to lose. And so what I really want to drive home for everyone here is just this idea that we keep saying, you know, the youth are the leaders of tomorrow. And what I learned in Copenhagen is that it's completely the opposite. They're absolutely the leaders of today. So thank you. Fabulous. Thank you, Emily, and thank all of our fantastic panelists. Let's give them another round of applause, all of them. I'm sure a lot of you have comments, questions, etc., um, about about Copenhagen. If you'd like to uh, direct it to a specific individual, you can do so. As with the presenters, we ask you to keep it really brief. You will hear our little Zen bell at 30 seconds, um, which is your cue uh, to to wrap it up. If we don't get to all the questions. We will have a camera available. You can ask questions to our camera, and we'll post some of those on Facebook. So please identify yourself briefly um, when you come to the microphone. And are we okay? first question, please? Hi. Thank you, everybody. I'm Holly Kaufman. I was a negotiator on the treaty in the Clinton administration and was in Copenhagen okay, with um, both a California NGO and with a Fortune 100 company. So most of you addressed the um, very significant and uh, critical role of subnational governments, um, both for what they're doing now and for what they can continue to do. But I was hoping that some of you could address more the private sector, both small to medium businesses, as well as the Fortune 500 companies. And what are they... Um, what should their continuing role be, and how do you see them managing their greenhouse gases in the current climate now that um, federal legislation is a bit up in the air? I don't mean to be using all these puns. And um, Bruce Clafter, let's, uh, you're, you're, uh, let's speak to the business sector. And we sector. don't know what's happening with the accord. I actually think, yeah. I actually think the equation is, is simpler for small and medium-sized enterprises than, than for large ones. For large ones... You're looking for things like regulatory drivers, mandates, and so on. I think smaller businesses should really be looking at the business case. How can they improve their businesses? And that means not only their operations, um, whether it's energy efficiency and so on, but we're seeing tremendous innovation come out of smaller businesses. And if they can bring innovative solutions to the marketplace, I really think they can have a significant role in a low-carbon economy. So... I was struck by the fact that in Copenhagen, all the businesses there, including the ones at a green expo I attended, were basically saying, bring it on. They were ready for something to emerge, and then unfortunately it did not. So I I think business is still very encouraged, and we're going to see a lot of energy and a lot of solutions come out of not only the United States, but all over the world. Entrepreneurs are amazing. Amy Lewis from Google. or Sally, would you like to add something? I would like to add something. Um, At the Skoll Foundation, we work with social entrepreneurs all over the world. One organization whom we've supported is Ceres. And 
On January 27th, the SEC released its new guidance to companies, instructing them to disclose to their investors the risks posed by climate change. And this includes their carbon intensity. So this is a major accomplishment. Sirius has been working with the SEC for seven years to get to this point. This is a real watershed and probably the, um, the shot over the bow that will lead to regulation. Climate disclosure involves disclosing your emissions and the risks to your investors. Uh, Nancy Skinner. I will only add that we are not going to see significant action on climate change in the U.S. by the federal government until corporate action is, you know, the reality in this country is politics is money, and when the large companies aren't behind it, then the federal government's not going to be able to get behind it either. So that's something we have to demand and action by uh, groups like Ceres, by the Climate Disclosure Project, and by all the different grassroots and larger organizations. It's imperative. We need to make our dollars talk. We need to get companies to take this seriously. Leslie Dershinger, and then we'll go to the next question. Add one thing with respect to emitters. They need to do things that are early action. And with respect to the financial services sector, they need to invest in offsets in green technology. That's what I would say the role of the private sector is. Next question. Hi, I'm Jesse Baker. I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley studying solar energy. I heard a lot of you say that the real change is happening at the local level and there's not much being done at higher levels. I'm wondering if that means that it's not worth having these international conventions or if something can still be accomplished at them, and if so, what needs to change to get them to be useful? Is it worth it? Who'd like to tackle that one? AG? I think you might have mistaken a little bit of what we were saying is is that at this conference especially, the role for the the, the subnational com, uh, countries and provinces and states and, and the private sector as well was opened up more than ever before possibly. What you did see was a huge commitment in different sector areas from uh, national governments around the planet show up, as was mentioned earlier, that they recognize that there's the, the need for action is now, that no action is not an option. And so um, I'm thinking what happens because of the way we are able to communicate globally these days, the more we can discuss what the options are, the opportunities are, the future, a, a viable future of where we want to be as a, a planet, and we start to work towards that, converge our resources towards that from the bottom or from the top down, that's a good thing. And so uh, I, I'd say just the opposite. Uh, as we educate global populations about what kind of a world we want to have, we have to do that through the, these different platforms. Dan Jacobson. I think that while we may see uh, stalls at the U.N., the exciting thing will be is that states are not only going to take action within their own borders, but start to team up with other borders. And over the next six months to two years, I think you're going to see some really interesting alliances with California and Texas and states in Brazil and China and India teaming up on education and on technology and, and on ways to share information and that's what's going to make the real difference. And that's where once those, and I don't like to use the word treaties, but once those agreements start to shape out, that's what will help the U.N. more than anything else. Amy Lewis. Yeah, I, get, I would just reiterate that I think it's really important to continue international negotiations. If we're going to meet the targets to avoid a two-degree rise, we need to um, address head-on some of the equity issues between the wealthy nations and the poor nations. 
that are um, rapidly developing and becoming part of a serious part of the problem. I think, though, that we need to open up the process and think about not just focusing on uh, national targets and timelines, but open it up to uh, different sectoral approaches and bring in a subnational, subnational process. And I think that the red um, project, the red process, reduction in emissions and deforestation and degradation, is one example where sectoral process at an international level could, can be helpful. Next question. Good evening. My name is Alexander Winslow. I worked for the uh, uh, Environmental Protection Agency on the climate change issue in the 1990s, and I have a blog, Climate Change Update. Um, Nancy Skinner, God bless you. It's great to have you here. Uh, You have more climate change knowledge and experience than probably everybody in the room combined. Uh, Folks, the... uh, Viewed not in a vacuum, but within the context of the climate change issue, which is a crisis. It's not a problem. It's a crisis. It's an imminent crisis of epic, unprecedented proportion, and it's now. Viewed within that context, Copenhagen was a debacle, an utter waste of time. Why is nobody talking about forgetting this existing model of these painful, protracted UN negotiations where we exult and rejoice in baby steps when enormous steps were needed yesterday. Why are we talking about continuing this process and going on to Mexico City in whatever that COP16 one year from now as if that's going to make things better the way we need them to be made and the way the changes that need to be made? Thank you. So let's talk about that. Should the COP be saved? Should there, there's, there's already some talk about moving towards the G20, other groups of countries that can make action more quickly. Nancy Skinner? I have to stay optimistic to get up in the morning. But he is absolutely right to get up in the morning and keep doing our work, right? But he's absolutely right. It is a crisis. So we have to accelerate progress. It's essential. And we need the international negotiations because, listen to what you heard today, because it keeps inspiring people and it keeps motivating, it keeps putting a pressure point. We also do need an international agreement because it is what's going to send the signal to all the multinationals as well as countries that there's going to be some level of playing field and to make those long-term type of decisions. And until there is that kind of signal, they'll play, we'll, we'll all, we companies, countries, will play each other against each other. So that's why it's essential. Even though we haven't achieved it yet, we still have to keep trying. But can't that happen through other forums other than the UNFCC? It can happen through the G20? Yes, it could happen through other forums than the UNFCC, but it's got to be larger than the G20. Okay, because G20 doesn't include some very important affected countries. Um, Lewis. Well, I think um, when you look at what, what happened, is five leaders of five countries got together and hammered out a deal. And that's, to me, illustrative of what, the way it's going to be in the future. Um, you have smaller groups, G8, G20, uh, uh, Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Forum, um, any of those venues, now that the world leaders are at the table discussing climate change, they're going to hammer out some kind, hopefully, between themselves at a smaller scale. Whether that makes it into a U.N. treaty or not, I don't know. I think the U.N. treaty process is kind of broken. I think the, the chaos in the logistics that we all experienced was, was mirrored by the chaos in the negotiating process. So, but I, I remain optimistic because you had 115 world leaders there, uh, and the small group that, that did sign initially, 
initially the, uh, the accord, accounted for 80, 85% of global emissions. Last week I heard an official from, from Mexico talk about Mexico's dilemma. They're looking to see whether the Copenhagen Accord will be a failed instrument uh, and perhaps let it die and then do something new in Mexico or if there gets to be some momentum behind this instrument and then it's something that they seek to, to build upon. So something key to watch for Mexico for next year. Dan. Hmm. Yeah, hi, I'm Dan Miller. I was in Copenhagen on behalf of a renewable, renewable energy company and also an NGO. And while I found it to be, um, it was kind of a follow-up to the last question in some way, while I found it to be a very exciting, interesting experience, I got a feeling that there was a disconnect between what the scientists are telling us and what was going on in Copenhagen. I guess the best way to put it is I felt people weren't sufficiently scared, and I appreciate comments. Who's scared? Tony, uh, I'm scared I'm, as hell. Sorry. Oh, we're both scared. <laughs> no, I, yeah, um, it went back to what I was previously thinking as well on the question of, of uh, movement on this topic. And I'll be the naysayer because I think we're sitting in San Francisco. I don't think the majority of the U.S. population is convinced yet. I'm just I'm very focused on the U.S., but on that climate change is really happening. And I talked about some climate emails that went around about some of the top modelers. I still think we have a long way to go to start on that fundamental issue, even though I'm convinced of convincing people that the science is truly uh, as severe as we think, and as well that there will be impacts to the United States, especially in California. Most people, when you talk about impacts, are people underwater in Bangladesh and other places, but I think it really needs to start addressing some of the climate impacts that we'll see in the United States. And polls certainly show the number of people who think it's either man-made or, or uh, are, are uh, declining. And AG, Commodore, I think the in our arena of agriculture, watching food systems around the planet, whether it's a 12-year drought in Australia, which has collapsed much of their agricultural system, almost 50 percent in terms of their output. Um, you look at the Northern Plain in China. You look at a blight uh, in Vietnam in the rice production and a drought out in Argentina. You look at a pine bark beetle in our own country devastating. You know, a forest uh, where you have tremendous deforestation all the way up to the Canadian and beyond the Canadian border. These are the kinds of crises that a lot of us are seeing and recognizing that, okay, if this is happening, how are we going to adapt? How, do we, how are we going to start to prepare for this kind of a future, whether it's different invasive species, uh, zoonotic diseases that are pushed through the malaria, you know, like malaria? Um, many of us are, are very, very uncomfortable, if not down, downright terrified, of what the potential for challenges are if left unchecked, if left undiscussed. And so as we start to look in our little toolboxes of things that we can do globally, big, small, little, local, uh, I think what we're hoping is just that in the dialogue you start to realize that we're all connected a lot more than we ever thought we were. Emily Adler? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, that's a lot of the reason why we're doing the work that we're doing at ACE. Um, we feel that really people aren't aware and aren't scared enough of what's happening. Um, so we are trying to get out there and speak with high school students and, um, you know, allow them to step up and be the change makers. But on the other hand, um, you know, the fact that this was headline news for two weeks all around the world um, for the first time, really, um, I found that to be pretty astonishing um, and kind of exciting. So I think it, the consciousness is changing. The, the Pew report showed that a, a coverage of environmental issues actually declined. It was before Copenhagen last year in 2009. Next question. Hi, I'm Brian Schuster. Uh, I'm a client, uh, climate change specialist for ICF International. And we have done the U.S. inventory for a number of years. And my question is a couple parts. One, 
Um, Pick your favorite part. Okay, so the, all of the local actions, we also do climate action plans for local governments for, um, and for states and things like that. And it's, it's wonderful that they're doing that. But you know, 80% of the U.S. inventory plus is from energy consumption. Um, you have people like James Hansen saying the only way we're going to solve climate change is by eliminating coal combustion. The big, big picture issues. You know, it's great that we're doing all these small things, but that's what's going on. Thanks. So what do you see um, in that, you know, progress moving forward there? How do you see countries addressing that type of thing from, like, the big picture emitters? Nancy Skinner on coal. You have um, states like Iowa. Well, let's take uh, Texas, where um, one of the large companies that was going to had in in play 15 coal-fired power plants is now, yeah, to, exactly, has cut that number in half. In Iowa, James Hansen himself, he's a native Iowan, um, went to permit hearings in Marshalltown, Waterloo, and other uh, cities in Iowa, and helped with um, lots of other Iowans to stop two, two coal power plants there. So this is where the kind of knowledge and information that people like all of us have, and then that work locally to stop the coal power plants, at the same time states adopting RPS standards and uh, carbon, uh, carbon, uh, more than <clears throat> capture and storage is my favorite, but the one about your carbon equivalent for all uh, electricity produced, right? A carbon equivalent which would basically make the kind of coal power that we're doing now not available. Next question. The, the, re, the oh, real oh, opportunity, sorry. though, is in China. I mean, if, if we can, China's investment in renewables is actually pretty staggering. And China sees the handwriting on the wall, and it is building coal fired power plants at the rate of two a week. So as it cuts down its coal emissions and builds up its dependence on renewables, we'll see, we'll see change. Next question. We'll come back to Amy. Yeah, my name is James Nusa. I'm a social media and climate change campaign specialist was at COP15 and was also at the Governor's Global Climate Summit recently. Um, curious to see what y'all think um, a sub-national process would be that would work, and two, um, if you'd be interested in lobbying the UN to bring uh, a sub-national conference here to San Francisco, as Governor Schwarzenegger proposed uh, over COP15. Dan Jacobson? Um, the way I see it playing out is um, states across the country and across the world teaming up. Uh, as you probably know, if you were at the conference and you heard the governor speak, he's already proposed something called R20, which is getting states from the U.S. and states from around the country to get together and to start to team up. And I think, as I said before, it'll be in the form of education transfers, technology transfers, those kinds of deals that will be made between states, and then the opportunity for states to put in programs where people can make more money. And so, whereas the front page of the New York Times on Sunday talks about China is winning the race on building more renewable technologies, that's one where the states around the world have to be able to implement those and take those over. Tony Brunello, and then just briefly, uh, two things. There should be an event in San Francisco. We're tired of doing them in L.A., so that's the first thing. Uh, Second is uh, there's a governor's climate and forest task force that we've developed over the last two years, which I'll talk about, which I think has been a success of getting 14 states in five different countries to address this topic of red that you're uh, dealing with. I think in order to do that, you need to make sure that the states are committed, they're linked with their national government, and you have some type of funding to carry these things out. Because we all do MOUs, all these states have MOUs, and a lot more want to do them with Schwarzenegger. But you need to have something to back it up. And so we had the Moore and Packard Foundation actually provide support, uh, knowing that states don't have the capacity to do these things. So I think we need to see more of these. 
because yeah, some people think an MOU piece of paper, nice photo op, but nothing really happens. Leslie Dersinger? I would just add to what Tony said, that in the land use sector, the technology for accurately measuring emissions, accounting for leakage, and so forth, is very complicated. So without subnational approaches, there is no way that many, many countries will participate in our lifetime in a national uh, 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 scope. So it's really, really key. A bottom-up approach is, is needed. Amy, I cut you off. Do you want to say something? Well, the comment that I was going to make was on coal, and I think that um, getting to the sort of the core of that issue, I think one comment that one response that wasn't made is, you know, the real challenge there is what we need to do is invest in research and development to get renewable energies cheaper than coal, and that's the core problem that we have to uh, address at, at all levels. Next question. Hi, I'm James George with EnviroBeat. I was I was at the COP15. Um, this is often presented in terms of science. Science is neutral. There's no politics to science, right? Well, there really is, actually. Or it's presented in terms of a global vision. The COP15 opened with a video of a little girl having a nightmare about floods. And so we all have to work together to save the planet. But really, all the negotiators represent someone. They have a self-interest. And I think that's where there's a big breakdown. Like, for example, Obama in his State of the Union, he mentions that the United States can get ahead by being the leader. We can outcompete everyone in the Green Revolution and become economically viable. So there's a contradiction between people asking countries to work together and asking in the context of existing economic competition. So can, can you, we rise above self-interest and focus on the commons? Yeah, and, and how you. do we address right. this? Thank you. Who wants to tackle that one about rising above narrow self-interest to uh, address the commons? A.G. Kamamura? I'd just like to make an observation that uh, we're in, in a country that lives with a luxury of abundance where we have great choices in, in our energy supplies, uh, and many people uh, will have an opinion on nuclear or solar or wind or petroleum-based or, or uh, geothermal or uh, ethanol. And by having so much abundance, when you have a choice, that's a wonderful thing to have choices. A lot of, a lot of folks, of course, would just like to be able to turn on a light switch and the light goes on or off in, in the rest of the world. Likewise, with food, you have choices. You have a, it can be organic, it can be conventional, it can be uh, GM, it can be uh, heirloom. And, and if the goal globally is to create abundance so that you have choices, not waste, but abundance, and you have efficient technologies trying to drive us so that we have a choice between, I guess you call it, between survival and living. And the best example I can have is, uh, if I can take a sec, is you look at the Netherlands, and the Netherlands has uh, had a history of uh, of flooding, and they built storm walls that could withstand a one in 10,000-year storm. Not a one in in 1,000, but a one in 10,000-year storm, because their experience after so many centuries of drowning and and flooding, they decided we're not going to survive the next North North Sea storm surge. We're going to live through it. So we're going to build what we can with the technologies we have. This is 1950s. And they basically said we're going to thrive, live through these, these challenges. That's the challenge we have in the world. Are we going to choose to live through these challenges ahead of us, or are we just going to have strategies to help us survive? Let's go to the, uh, Bruce Clafter. Okay. Well, I just wanted to add, while um, President Obama's remarks might have seemed a little chauvinistic, I do think it's important that we have a locally-based component of green jobs. That's part of a low-carbon economy. It's important that the United States not import all of our solutions from other parts of the world. So whether you want to deem that competition, 
Um, I think there's definitely room for both cooperation, but also a healthy dose of competition to really create those jobs. And I, I hope the, the president and the administration succeed. Leslie Dershinger. I would add that the um, self-interest and the greater good are not always mutually exclusive. Uh, that we're a private company. We are trying to do good things. We're also trying to make a return for our shareholders. So it's not always a mutually, mutually exclusive situation. Win-win. Next question. Hi, my name is Darian Rodriguez-Hayman with the Carbon War Room, an environmental NGO. Uh, and I was also in Copenhagen. And I want to go back to this opportunity because I think as, as we were talking about climate change being such a significant crisis, uh, to me the issue is not that people aren't scared enough. I think that the reality is fear is not inspiring them uh, to the action needed. And so my question is, how do we start to create these working models that really dispel this false choice people feel they're currently presented with between needing to decide between jobs and polar bears uh, between the interests of the economy and the environment. Who'd like to take that one? Nancy Skinner. It's the million-dollar question. Um, um, you know, uh, fact-based information is good. Right now in California, the only sector that has been semi-recession-proof is the green sector. 2008 broke records in terms of venture capital in our clean energy and clean tech sector in California. While everywhere else we were seeing, you know, horrible uh, losses of capital, job losses, you name it. So right now, at least California's policy signals that are advancing us to a low-carbon economy and a low-carbon future have benefited our economy. They're the only signals right now that are, are hopeful in California's economy. So... Hopefully, we can uh, get that word out and people can see that it's not a false choice. It's the only choice. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're having a town hall meeting at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with the people who are at the Copenhagen Climate Summit. Dan Jacobson. I would just quickly agree with you. I don't think fear is good at motivating. I think it's good at getting attention, but creating opportunities for people to live, for people to build their business, and for people to thrive on clean energy and on what will be low-carbon um, programs are the way that we're going to be able to move forward. So that's where I think the optimism lies for me is that it's no longer a technology issue. I mean, there's a couple things that we need to put more R&D into, but we have cars that can get 150 miles to the gallon. If we put solar up on 7% of the rooftops, we could power the country. It's a political problem that we're having now, and that's where we just need more organizing to be able to fix that. Next question. Hi, Sarah Weldon with California Environmental Associates. Uh, it's an environmental consultancy, and I work on transportation and air quality. Um, even if and when the U.S. adopts a cap-and-trade program that covers the transportation sector or transportation fuels, the signal that would be sent down from the market that would change human behavior to reduce their emissions from, the cap from transportation wouldn't necessarily be strong enough to incite change. So I'm wondering how much transportation was talked about at the Copenhagen conference, and if so, uh, what specific things people were thinking of doing. Tony? Tony Brunello? Since nobody's answering, I have no idea. But, the, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but what I did want to say that I found, I forgot to mention what I learned most at Copenhagen was in one word, Bicycles. It was absolutely amazing to see it snowing, and there were women who were pregnant. There were so many people that were on their bikes with new models that I had never seen. And I can say that I know a number of us in the regulatory community, were, and not including myself, 
we're absolutely ecstatic. And I came home, I'm ready to ride my bike in any weather. And I think that mindset that you can really use uh, bicycling as a, as a way of transport through all conditions and having different roadways was a complete eye-opener for me. So I apologize. I didn't answer your question, so hopefully somebody if, can if answer There's also 200% duty on cars in Copenhagen, yeah, in Denmark. Yeah. And, and $7 a liter for um, gasoline. For, for so gasoline. the price signals are there. Uh, Louis Bloomberg. Well, I did not see much discussion of transportation at all, and it's really, as you look, the, there's no regulations on the marine sector, on boat ships, and there's no regulation on aircraft, so they're really pretty, pretty much ignoring that. Um, and transportation really is being dealt with, again, at the local and the regional level. Uh, here in California, the, the state's climate plan with, through AB 32 recognizes that local land use decisions have an impact on transportation plans and therefore on emissions from cars. So, again, it's a bottom-up activity where I think the action is. We have 10 minutes left. Next question. Hi, I'm Larry Fawn. I'm executive director at As You Sow, where we're working with Ceres and others on uh, moving through the use of investors and shareholder leverage to move corporations on this issue. We had a historic majority vote of shareholders at a public utility called Idacorp against a unanimous board and management insisting that they do a a greenhouse gas emissions reduction report, and we hope to move on that. I'm also on the board and a past president of Sierra Club and was at COP15 as a Sierra Club delegate. Uh, I was totally impressed with Catlin and the other young people in Copenhagen and the the emergence of young people-driven groups like 350.org. My question is, uh, well, I have several, but one, quick, pick one, one, quick one question. Uh, is cap and trade uh, viable through Congress, and wouldn't we better off joining James Hansen and Bill McKibben and others and calling for an alternative model involving a carbon fee and a rebate? Uh, there is a new legislation by uh, Senator Cantwell, I think, that some people are getting behind cap and dividend. Some people are saying cap and trade is dead already. Who'd like to take the national legislative question? Um, AG, come over. Just a quick comment. I don't have the answer to that as much as having a market signal, though, is, is critical. And one of the things this this state has done, and I think we have to continue to do, is when we create incentives, when you uh, make a place for the early adopters, the early adapters, uh, where they're not punished for uh, going out on a limb and trying to make things change, those are the kinds of at least structural things that we have to have. And when there are no signals right now, we're all kind of wondering what is going to happen next. That puts pause in the marketplace for some of the changes that we want to have happen. So so that's a very good question, and I think uh, the more we can as states or provinces or, or countries create incentives uh, and, and lay out why uh, it's viable, a business viable uh, direction for us to go, uh, that, that's critical at this point, and, uh, and unfortunately we're not getting there. Bruce Clafter, will we get a price on carbon? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it's actually just very disheartening to see the amount of polarization that we have in Congress right now. So whether you... Uh, propose a cap-and-trade scheme or a, car- a carbon tax, economists will tell you that you know, the results may be roughly similar. Um, so that's a mechanical issue. But it's really discouraging to see attempts to roll back EPA's authority um, and the tactics that are being employed in Congress right now. So I'm, I'm not very optimistic we're going to see one soon, unfortunately. Let's try to get some of these questions. We have a few minutes remaining. Next question. Um, hi, my name is Heidi, and I work at a company called Carbon Flow that... Um, does software to help carbon projects get created, approved, and verified right now through the CDM process, um, also through any U.S. mechanisms that might happen. Um, so my question is a bit of a follow-up question to several of the ones about the private industry and incentives in green jobs, and sort of specifically what 
California, is there any new incentive plans or ways to create even more green jobs in California? Green, in jobs, green jobs in California. Dan Jacobson. Well, we know the governor uh, has just issued in his State of the Union a tax break for green companies that are producing solar and wind. And I think yesterday or two days ago was at a uh, clean tech manufacturing plant. And so that those are the kinds of things that California can do. But I think California will need to continue to push the envelope on clean and green technologies. And again, somebody said it earlier, but thank God we've got Nancy Skinner up in the assembly because the work that she does uh, sponsoring these bills and authoring them, pushing them through, will create the kind of incentives that businesses need so that you've got clean, green jobs producing clean energy. Nancy Skinner. There are, my previous remarks notwithstanding, there are many, many companies and many large multinational corporations that are being very proactive on this issue and are doing the right things. We just need to get more of them to do so. But we are, um, the governor is looking at trying to help more signals for encouraging this part of California's economy, and we're looking at a number of bills, including bills that would help promote uh, the development of energy storage technology. Energy storage will help us when we do renewable generation. One of the issues around renewables is that, you know, they're not always 24-7. You need reliability in your electrical power. Energy storage would help us there. There's lots of things. I've done bills recently on improving energy efficiency. Those send policy signals to companies. More widgets around energy efficiency. More jobs, more technologies, more. Next question. Hi, I'm Jonathan Shambroom, a tech entrepreneur in the Bay Area, and I ride a bicycle and I vote. Um, I, uh, I feel that the imperative for so much of this topic and this change just, you know, it doesn't end. It stretches so far into the future that I'm curious what's happening at the education level, kind of in an organized fashion, so that at the earliest, youngest levels in schools and within the education system, this topic is becoming part of um, the awareness and the perspective of you know the youngest kids. There is a new California statewide curriculum coming down the pipeline uh, that EPA, Cal EPA worked on, and others. Who wants to talk about uh, Sally Osberg? I, I, I can't talk about that, Greg, but I can tell you that one of the most beautiful um, spokespersons at Copenhagen is Jane Goodall, whose Roots and Shoots program is all over is is global, and which speaks to this issue of young children and their inherent um, affinity with the planet and with the creatures on the planet. So looking at programs like that that are building the bond between kids and their world is, I think, where we start. It's a wonderful program, and she is, I think, just a powerful, powerful spokesperson for enrolling children in this cause. Catlin, you're in school. um, (laughs) How much are you learning about these issues? Um, I just want to point out that um, at my high school, it was actually harder to get a recycling program (laughs) Um, and that's what we did um, than almost anything else that I've ever done in my life. But um, I just also want to point out that it seems that elementary schools and middle schools, um, it seems to be coming from, like, the ground up, and then these kids get older, and there's, like, no opportunities. And I almost feel like in elementary school, there's lots of... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) In elementary school, let's just say the elementary schools are a lot greener than the high schools. <laughs> so the kids lose their interest? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying the, the um, schools uh, aren't as green once you get to high school. Have any of you seen Avatar? 
I mean, there is a pretty powerful, <laughs> powerful uh, paradigm for the future. I would add just a little bit uh, on the micro side of things. My daughter, who's in elementary school, goes to a private school here in San Francisco. These schools are, they have the Echo Council, and they are integrating awareness into their curriculum. And while I'm on the Echo Council for my daughter's school, many of the other parents have kids in other schools. So, yes, it's small, and it's private schools in San Francisco, but my kid knows a lot more about how to live sustainably than I do, and she's seven. So, Give this Emily Adler. Yeah, so... Is this on? Yeah. Um, on the education tip, that's what we do. Um, and Catlin's totally right. It's a lot easier to get into um, elementary schools and middle schools. There's a lot more support there. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of it is because high schools have a lot of testing and um, standards and things that they're trying to meet. Um, but one of our biggest hurdles as an organization has just been getting into schools in the first place. Um, so if anyone knows schools out there, we're, we offer free presentations, um, aspace.org. So check it out. Last word, Dan Jacobson. Well, I, I don't want to poo-poo the education because I, th- I think it's critical, but um, the political organizing is the thing that we also have to do and we can't sacrifice one for the other. Our thanks to our panelists here today and to the town hall for this. So let's give them all a big round of applause. You've been listening to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club discussing the recent UN Climate Conference in Copenhagen. We've enjoyed hearing from Nancy Skinner, chair of the Natural Resources Committee of the California State Assembly, Amy Lures, environment manager at Google.org, Sally Osberg, president and CEO of the Skoll Foundation, Bruce Clafter, head of corporate responsibility and sustainability at Applied Materials, A.G. Kawamura, secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, Dan Jacobson, executive director of Environment California, Catlin Gray, a student at Alameda High School, Leslie Dershinger, a managing partner at Terra Global, Terra Global Capital, thank you, uh, Tony Brunello, Deputy Secretary for Climate Change and Energy at the California Natural Resources Agency, Tony uh, and Emily Adler, who is... Uh, this is this is too long. It's, it doesn't fit on one piece of paper. Who booked this program? Um, Louis Bloomberg, who heads California Climate Change at the Nature Conservancy, and Emily Adler with Alliance for Climate Education. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this program is concluded. Thank you.